Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. So good to be with you. Our theme today is make love the measure of maturity. Make love the measure of spiritual maturity and really all maturity. Let me just say at the outset, uh, this series of podcasts in which we're in right now are actually introductions to each chapter of the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book that was released just recently. Now, I wrote that book uh, very much, not so you would skim through it or just get a cursory understanding of the concepts, but actually my prayer and hope is that you will actually reflect on it, pray over it, ponder it, let it read you, uh, that it might, might actually be lived and form the basis of a a biblical basis of a new operating system for the church of doing discipleship and leadership development. So there's a discussion guide with some introduction videos available for you free at emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship. Uh, let me encourage you to go to that emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship and uh, to talk about uh, what you're hearing here in these podcasts uh, in the book, uh, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. So we began with talking about four failures that undermine deep discipleship, and, and then I began to just take one mark at a time of a culture that deeply transforms lives and actually um, brings into the church and our ministries the missing components of a serious discipleship that deeply changes people in the context of mission and community. So we talked about be before you do. Follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus, embracing God's gift of limits, discovering the treasures buried in grief and loss. And today I want to talk to you about make love the measure of maturity. And uh, every chapter I feel like I want to say this is the most important chapter, uh, make love the measure of maturity, because it is, uh, again, it's a, it's a concept, it's a Copernican revolution. Once it gets under your skin, uh, and you begin to realize the massive implications of it. So let me try to introduce you to it today, and let me begin with a, a story uh, that I uh, from Martin Buber in the year 1914. It was the year that World War I broke out in Europe, and a young man came to visit Martin Buber. He was a well-known Jewish, uh, German Jewish theologian and writer, and uh, the meeting went like this, according to, to Buber. Uh, he was he just come out of a morning of great uh, fervor and ecstasy with God, uh, and uh, some young man came to see him, and he was because he just come out of this you know religious ecstatic experience with God in the morning. Uh, while he was friendly, he wasn't actually really present with this young man, uh, and the guy had come with some the young guy had come with some questions, essential questions about his life, but it turns out later that. Uh, he, he found out that the man committed suicide, and uh, it just shook Martin Buber to the core. Now, uh, before the war began, at this point, Martin Buber considered himself deeply religious, uh, involved in you know ecstasy and uh, beyond the earthly, ordinary experiences of life. He was just caught up in God and heaven, but he, he realized that uh, something was profoundly wrong with his relationship with God, with religion. And uh, he was not fully present to this young man. He was preoccupied with his experiences with God. And uh, he didn't turn to this young man with his, as he puts it, his whole being. Uh, he gave him his leftovers. And it was a judgment on his whole way of life. Uh, and he ended up writing, five years later, this classic book called I, Thou. Uh, only five years after, a few years after World War I had ended. 
And uh, I, I relate very much to that story. I love the story, not just because I think I, Thou was such an important book uh, and some concepts for us really relate to the gospel and our discipleship. But I, too, was have been very preoccupied. My first 17 years of my Christian life, uh, the presence I brought to people was very distracted, very preoccupied. And it just never occurred to me that I was missing something central in the teaching of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, uh, that linked love for God and love for people so beautifully. And it was a shadow in my own life, in my own leadership, uh, and a shadow in the whole church that we were building. And um, it was a turning point in my life when, again, uh, after having been a Christian almost two decades, Jerry tells me she doesn't feel loved by me. Uh, like I was uh, actually loving her like Christ. Now, I did love her, of course, uh, but I realized then that there was a huge gap in my discipleship and that I was passionate about growing in love for God, but not passionate about growing in love for people, including those closest to me, and that I was an emotional infant leading the church, and I was very embarrassed, uh, stricken. Uh, I mean, my goodness. I mean, I, I, again, I, I just didn't have a, any kind of theology, any kind of training, any kind of discipleship on what to do with my anger, for example, or disappointment. I didn't know how to be honest in relationships that were difficult. I, I didn't know how to deal with differences. I didn't know how to deal with conflicts. Uh, I didn't know how to say a respectful no. Uh, so I ended up saying yes way more than I ever intended. Uh, I didn't know how to speak clearly and honestly and respectfully. And so as I was pastoring, uh, we just continued to have the same basic conflicts over and over again, year after year. And I realized something was really wrong, uh, deeply wrong. Uh, and again, we had people who were faithful members but were detached uh, and angry underneath the surface. Or we had gifted teachers who were unteachable uh, and had a level of pride in them that was evident if you got really close to them. And we had people who knew the Bible really well but that were uh, unaware of their defensiveness and their irritability. We had a lot of nice Christians uh, who just avoided conflict and difficult conversations at all costs. And it became obvious to me that the quality of love inside the church uh, was really not that different of the quality of love outside the church. And uh, again, it was just emotional immaturity in action. And uh, again, we, I, we didn't disciple people this way. I wasn't discipled this way. Uh, it was not a value. It was not a priority. The, 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 the emphasis was on leadership development, knowing the Bible, gifts, anointing, knowledge, you know, planting churches, evangelism. But Jesus, and I, and I, when I saw this, it was such a, again, it was a revolution, much like Buber's. And I saw the way he connected true spirituality to uh, loving people. In other words, loving God and loving people are inseparable. And, and uh, in fact, if I could summarize Jesus on this, he would say the degree to which we love our enemies, those who we find really difficult and irritating, is the degree to which we love God. Now, let me just give you four quick uh, little biblical examples, but they're, but, uh, and I, and I hope it'll, it'll hit you with a punch, which it eventually hit me. And so when Jesus was asked, what is the one greatest commandment? He refused to give just one. Uh, he gives two, uh, you know, love God and love your neighbor. For him, the two are inseparable. Now the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and the religious leaders of his day separated the two. Uh, very easily, and they just wanted one commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, and again, Jesus refuses to give one, he gives two. And then he, he does the great reversal in the Sermon on the Mount, which, you know, in, in uh, ancient times, in first century Judaism, 
if uh, if a rabbi taught that if you're giving if you're giving your gift to the altar and remember your brother or sister has something against you, uh, you know, finish your worship and then go and reconcile with your brother. And Jesus reversed that and said, no, no, if you're giving your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Jesus said, leave your gift at the altar and get reconciled to your brother and or sister and then come bring your gift. And again, for him, it was this the, the person, that the, the relationship uh, was inseparable from worship to God. And so he said, leave your worship and go and reconcile with that person. When Jesus was at Matthew's house, the tax collector, after Matthew came to Christ, he goes to Matthew's house and he's eating with all these tax collectors and sinners, uh, folks who were contaminating, uh, who considered unclean, uh, and, and the religious leaders, they start criticizing Jesus. Why are you eating with these people? And, uh, and Jesus simply responds, you know, he quotes Hosea 6, he quotes scripture to them and says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's Hosea 6, 6. And he said, you don't get it. If you're, if you're not merciful and approachable and safe and kind uh, and warm and loving, uh, your sacrifices, your religious activity is worth nothing. That was Hosea's whole point. And Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, you don't get it. You may mem- have memorized the first five books of the Bible. Uh, you may have zeal that you'll cross over a, a, a sea to, to gain one convert. You may give all your money you know, to the poor and tithe without scruples, but if you don't have love, you've got nothing. And then, of course, Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 13, when, uh, again, you got to look at 1 Corinthians 13, not as a wedding text, although it's a nice wedding text. That's not what it was written for. Uh, the book of Corinthians is, a, in especially chapters 12, 13, and 14, it's a rebuke to this very gifted, very zealous, very brilliant church uh, and Jesus is saying, you may have faith to move mountains, you may have, speak in the tongues of angels, uh, you may have the gift of prophecy, but if you don't have love, you've got nothing. And, and uh, again, Paul is, is bringing out this same truth of Jesus that the Corinthians were not making the connection of that love for God and love for people cannot be separated. That's why the title of this chapter is Make Love the Measure of Maturity. For Jesus, the essence of true spirituality is loving well. Uh, I mean, I think about it. If my own in my own life, if Jerry, first seven eight years of our marriage, I didn't know how to be present to her. She didn't know how to be present to me either. How was I going to be present and love well my neighbors and friends and the wider community? I mean, Jerry had been trying to tell me for years that she was lonely uh, and that she didn't feel heard or seen. But I really had no idea what she was talking about. I was too I was too busy. I was too preoccupied with God's work. And as I've mentioned, you know, previously, this led Jerry to quit the church uh, in 1996, and this led us to a uh, to go away to two uh, excellent Christian counselors. And in the middle of that week, we were with them. We learned a simple skill called incarnational listening. Uh, and I don't even I don't remember the actual content of the conversation, but I do remember is seeing Jerry and being seen by Jerry for the first. It really it felt for the first time, and it was extraordinary. It was it was overwhelming, uh, I, and I was just dumbstruck. Uh, I'd been a Christian for years at that point, but nothing prepared me for the glory of God that descended upon us at that moment. And that's what led to this radical shift in discipleship that we call today emotionally healthy discipleship. Uh, In other words, it was that moment of actually love between a person, in my case with Jerry at that moment, that kicked in 
what I'd overlooked biblically, which was so clear in Scripture for so long. And that's when I realized that a person can be chronologically 25, 35, 55, 85, and still be an emotional infant or child. And that thesis that you hear often, that emotional health and spiritual maturity uh, are inseparable, that it's not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature, really is in the context of relationships, loving. And so we began to work on these skills uh, over the next 19, 20 years. And uh, we, we wanted not just ourselves grow in it, we wanted to move people from defensiveness and reactivity and fear to openness and empathy and vulnerability. And, and so it became emotionally healthy discipleship. Cordo, it was moving people to get discipled in relationship to learn to love well, because love is the measure of spiritual maturity. And uh, and so this formed the, uh, we developed over these you know, 19, 20 years, uh, these skills. And it's it's really part two of the, uh, it's called the Emotionally Healthy Relationships uh, course. And that the, the skills transformed our marriage, our parenting, our family, our leadership, our church. Uh, and we created these skills and, and honed them through a 1.0 and a 2.0 globally in a variety of contexts because we realized we have got to move the church to disciple people to love well. And uh, we underestimate the depth of our bad habits, uh, the family of origin stuff in us going back three to four generations uh, in the way we do relationships. And what it means to change a culture as people come into our ministries, they bring with them their old culture of how they do relationships. That must be broken uh, in the new family of Jesus through scripture. And so when a pastor, for example, said to me recently, Pete, I've been so busy, I haven't really seen anyone in years. I mean, I what, what, a, what a statement. I had another pastor say to me, Pete, I, I love the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality uh, course, uh, but this, you know, the part one uh, of the Emotionally Discipleship course that we encourage people to bring to churches because, but this Emotionally Healthy Relationship stuff, I just, I just can't bring it to my church. I'm just not comfortable with it. And, and I said, do you realize if you don't, grow in this in your own discipleship, you're going to doom your people to spiritually and spiritual and emotional immaturity for the rest of their lives. And you're going to be recycling the same old relational uh, conflicts and difficulties decade after decade after decade. And if you're listening to me, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So this conviction about love and spiritual maturity being so connected is really revolutionary. It's going to revolutionize your disciple making, your leadership development, what you accept and don't accept in the culture and the ministry that you're building, because we are building a new culture. It's actually going to transform your own personal relationships um, in your teams uh, and the people around you and how you spend your time. So when you when you get invited, for example, to an event you don't want to go to, this will be three hours away from your home, uh, and you, you don't just go attend it because you don't know what to do, what to say, you don't, you don't want to face their disapproval. You actually have got some skills to approach it truthfully and honestly and respectfully uh, to the person. Or you've got someone who's underperforming under you, uh, and rather than avoid it or dance around it and hope the person gets the message, uh, or out of fear that you might be angry with them, you do nothing, uh, you actually have the skills now to actually approach that person in, again, an honest, respectful, uh, kind way, but live in truth at the same time. That's a discipleship issue. So... In, the ch in this chapter, um, I do talk about two big theological frameworks. One is incarnation, in making incarnation your model for loving well, which I'm going to 
you know, that we, we follow the way of Jesus, we incarnate, we enter people's worlds, we hold on to ourselves, and we live in the tension between those two worlds. But I want to focus on Martin Boover's work, which, which I began with uh, in this podcast, uh, because out of that, uh, in the 1920s, he began to develop this scheme, uh, scheme is kind of a framework of, uh, he called it I-it or I-thou relationships. Very often we treat people as its versus as thous, made in God's image. And treating someone as an it is, um, for example, I'm, I'm distracted. I'm, uh, I see them as an object or an extension of myself. I'm judgmental. I, I accept them, but only conditionally. It's more of a monologue with people. Uh, limited sharing, closed, uh, unwilling to learn or change. But an I-thou relationship is different. I'm fully attentive. I'm actually listening. I see each person as unique and made in the image of God. Uh, I'm in a dialogue. I'm exploring. I'm curious. I'm, I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to change. And but the truth is, so many of our relationships are are I it. I mean, I, I it's how I've lived most of my life. I, so in other words, I could be in a conversation with you, but actually my mind is focused on what am I going to say next? How am I going to answer you? Or I pass a person uh, in our uh, you know in, in our building in our church, but I don't even say hello because I'm, I'm, my mind again is it's just so fixated on what I've got to do next. Or I'm more concerned about the flow and the quality of my sermon message as I'm preaching, then I'm more concerned about that than actually loving and connecting to the people in the audience who are right in front of me. Or I size up people based on their, their schools they attended or their Enneagram number and uh, you know where they're from or what kind of work they do. And, uh, or I, I want to correct people when they make a faulty statement about God or life and I just feel responsible to have to correct them as soon as possible. And uh, or I, when I'm listening to someone who's saying something I don't agree with at all and I'm annoyed, I just hide my annoyance. Uh, that, that's an I-it. Those are I-it relationships. But when we relate to people as a thou, there's these three questions, and I, and I mentioned this in the chapter, and these have become very core to me. And actually, I, I thought these, um, these few pages on what does it mean to treat someone as a, a thou, I, uh, I, I adapted these three questions um, originally developed by David Benner, uh, in, in every conversation to ask ourselves so that to monitor, am I treating this person as a thou? And uh, they are this, am I fully present or distracted? Second is, am I loving or judging? And the third is, am I open or closed to being changed? Let me take one at a time here. The first question is, am I fully present or distracted. Uh, now, my middle name is distracted. I, 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 not only do I live in a culture that's living in partial attention, I, it's how I was raised. I, I, uh, I didn't know what it was like to have an experience of someone actually being present with me myself, let alone me being present to anybody. But the, the first question to ask ourselves is, am I fully present? Am I actually there? Or am I distracted in a rush uh, and I'm kind of half there. I've got 10 other things on my mind. Well, if you're not fully present, as Boober would say, uh, this person's an it. It's like asking your children as you're, as you're going out the door, how are you? And they say, not good. And you're like, I got to go, you know, <laughs> be quiet. I'll talk about it later. Uh, you're really not asking how they are because you don't want to be present with it. So the first question again is, am I fully present or distracted? The second question is, am I loving or judging? Now, it is so easy to live our lives making 
judgments. That was part of the original sin of Adam and Eve. They wanted to know the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so they could make judgments. Uh, and, uh, you know, we judge our spouses for not doing life our way. We judge our adult children for not making choices that we think they should, or our coworkers for not working the way that we think they should. You know, we judge people in other religions, uh, uh, along with atheists and agnostics, and for not following Jesus as Lord. And we judge younger people and older generations for the choices they're making that we don't think are good choices. We we judge people for the way they dress, the way they movies they watch, the cars they buy, music. Uh, we judge them based on their enneagram number. We've got any any series of criteria to judge people. Uh, and I speak as one who is a recovering judgeaholic. I, I get it. Very different than coming to a conversation just open and curious. You know, tell me more. Help me understand how you see the world and how you came to that conclusion. But you may be saying, well, Pete, I mean, you're saying that isn't, isn't part of our mission as Jesus followers to want people to believe as we do? Aren't, aren't we supposed to get people to change? And the answer is yes and no. I mean, yes, we want people to know God. Uh, who so loved the world he gave his only son. Uh, and we want them, people to come to Jesus, to faith in Jesus, who died and rose from the dead for them. We want them to participate in, in, as disciples, and, and Jesus, we want them to participate in Jesus' mission in the world and expand his kingdom. But it is not our mission to judge people, uh, even in the name of standing up for truth. In other words, when we judge, uh, we treat people as objects. Only God knowledge infinitely greater than us has the right and wisdom, the right and the wisdom to, to judge people. And when we cross that line, uh, and it was Karl Barth who said it you know, many, many years ago, that the root and origin of sin is the arrogance in which we want to be our neighbor's judge. And so I like when, when Buber describes a mismeeting. Uh, a mismeeting is basically when you meet with someone, but you're not, you don't actually connect. You're, it's a mismeeting. You miss each other. Uh, it's when we treat people as objects. We judge them. Uh, we dismiss them uh, versus a real meeting where we see a human being. Uh, and as he writes, every person born into the world represents something new, something that never existed before, something original and unique. And so therefore, we come to every conversation curious. We come to every conversation uh, open and, and trying to learn what these people made choices. Now, they may be biblically wrong and tragic, or even foolish, but, uh, and again, they could range anything from why this person converted to Buddhism uh, or decided to move in with their partner or had gender reconstructive surgery. But I come into the conversation treating them as a thou and uh, I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not judging. I'm actually loving them uh, as persons. Then the third question actually is the, is the most difficult question. So, if the first is, am I present or distracted? And the second is, am I loving or judging? But the third actually goes a step further, and that is, uh, am I open or closed to being changed? Am I open or closed to being changed? And this is really tough. The person, could you think, the person's not even a Christian. Well, why should I be open to being changed by them when, when I know they're wrong? Uh, well, the reason is we need to be open to be changed is because it's a requirement to even have a conversation or a dialogue. If you're not open to, to learn, then it's a monologue. It's one way. Uh, it's one-sided. Listen, we live in a world that is very pluralistic. Uh, we have neighbors who are Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and Sikhs and all these other faiths and uh, 
you know, living values that are very far apart from biblical values in our secular world. And, uh, you know, ex-evangelicals and Orthodox Jews and, and you know, atheists and so on. Uh, and, and this encounter with world religions is, is just increasingly, you know, common. Folks who are not, you know, of, of faith in Jesus. And, uh, and so, you know, it's been written, you know, one of the most critical issues for the 21st century is our ability to, to navigate being with people who believe radically different things than we do. I remember being with Dr. Laman Sani. He was a, uh, a native of Gambia. He's died. He used to teach at Yale Divinity School for many, many decades. And he's from Ghana, Gambia and uh, West Africa. And I remember him talking to me about, you know, the, the ability to dialogue with Muslims, for example, he was saying in West Africa, is so critical to the mission of Jesus because it's very often, you know, having the same family, you may have a, a Christian and a Muslim, uh, let alone neighbors. And that as you as we think about the world mission of the church, you're saying equipping our people to be able to have dialogue with folks from different religions is critical for the global mission of the church. And uh I consider this, and I consider this one of the most critical issues of the, facing the church, because when the people think of us uh, in the church, they think of us as judgmental, not as compassionate, not as loving. Uh, and I believe that's a discipleship issue. It's it's our it's equipping our people to be differentiated enough that they're able to have a dialogue with people without being threatened. In other words, I've got enough a sense of self, who God's made me to be, that I can be with anybody, but I'm present with them like Jesus. I mean, how did Jesus? Uh, have dinner at Matthew's house. And I'm imagining all these prostitutes and tax collectors and folks who are not repentant at all. And here's Jesus, the Holy One of the universe, but yet they feel very safe. They feel he's warm, uh, he's kind, he's loving, he is God, he is love himself, and they feel it. And yet, of course, he he is holy. <laughs> he is the Lord himself. Uh, and he is able to treat people as a thou, even though they have points of view that are diametrically opposed. I even think of the 12 disciples. He had a, he had a left winger in Matthew, the tax collector, in a sense, you think politically. And, and then he had a Simon the Zealot who was a right winger politically. But in the same community, he was able to hold together such different people. Um, uh, and, and part of the key for us to be churches that even hold the other folks who are different, centered around Christ, is our own differentiation level and growth in treating people as a thou, not an it. Now, you may be saying, well, Peter, are you saying that anything goes? There is no absolute truth? Not at all. Not at all. But it is biblical that every person we encounter is made in the image of God. Uh, and so I come to that person in a posture of openness that I can learn from them and be changed by them. It's like what John Calvin wrote. You know, Calvin wrote, in the 1600s, that that when thinking of ancient Greek and Roman thinkers, pagans, he, he writes about, he commends the fact that they have insights. He says, uh, they're never, never, even though they may be fallen and perverted from their from its wholeness, but there's they're clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. And he goes, don't despise truth wherever it shall appear, unless we wish to dishonor the spirit of God. So he understood there was truth coming from folks who were not Christians at all. And same thing with Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian in the 19th century, who affirmed the spirit of God working through non-believers. Uh, and, the, and this activity of the spirit was in, in, in people of common grace in human lives. 
And so God calls us to be with and to love people who see the world and experience the world differently than we do. And we do so without losing our faith or compromising our faith in Jesus. But we're humble learners. I, I love the story of you know, Martin Buber when he went to, you know, he was an Eastern European Hasidic, you know, his life as a Jewish man. He'd suffered persecutions, including that of Hitler's Germany. But he met with T.S. Eliot, who was an Anglican, Nobel Prize winner, a convert to the Anglican Church in England, you know, upper middle class, upper class. And everyone expected the meeting to be so difficult of Buber and T.S. Eliot. They had such different histories, such different religions, such different circles of friends. But at the end of the meeting, Buber was asked if he found his opinions very different than those of Eliot, T.S. Eliot. And his reply offers a window into what it means to treat someone as a thou. He simply says, when I meet a man, he said, I am concerned, I am not concerned with opinions, but with the man. I love that. I'm concerned with the man. I mean, Jerry and I had a conflict uh, uh, while I was writing the book, and uh, we have conflicts occasionally, part of being married. And every single time, I've got to step back when I when I find myself a bit stuck, and I and I say, am I am I present or am I distracted? Number one, am I loving or am I being judgmental? And number three is, am I open rather than closed to being changed? Uh, and that last one's the most difficult because I she's usually saying something I don't want to hear. Uh, and every time I come into it, I ask those three questions, we make tremendous progress. Try it. Listen, this will revolutionize the way that you measure maturity in your team, in your ministry, and the people you're discipling. But Jesus refused to accept people who were not growing in love for God and love for people. He, he integrates his loving of God and people. It's revolutionary. As he said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We really are to be the best lovers of people on the face of the earth, a counter countercultural community that relates maturely to one another. That is our greatest gift, or one of our greatest gifts we give to the world. So again, this needs to be discussed, thought about on multiple levels. Let me encourage you to uh, go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship. That is emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship. Pick up the discussion guide, the free discussion guide there, uh, and get into the uh, chapter uh, Make love your measure of spiritual maturity. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. You have a wonderful, wonderful day.